You may wish to adjust the dial you're currently tuned into. The wrong station. Four muddy survivors toiling uphill, with the mountain ramparts cyclopean on either side and the bludgeons of the thunderstorm beating down. Gnorix led them, the self-styled prince. Undaunted in the storm, his reddened braid streaming in the wind and the shreds of his threadbare plaid whipping about hard arms and torso. The others straggled behind. Maybe they still followed because he inspired them. Maybe because they feared he'd leave them behind. Where are we going? shouted Kalain. As far as we can! Magmedius, oldest of the four, his voice straining against the wind. The further we go, the better our odds. He knew their enemy of old, knew them a people of small and orderly mind. They disliked big places, wild places, places people weren't meant to go. Cormie won't make it much farther. Klain jerked his head back at the boy, who'd fallen far behind by now, wide-eyed and vacant from what he'd seen in the battle, stumbling, veering, trembling, pale, a distant ghost in the storm. But Mugmedius threw up an arm, pointing further up. He won't have to. Look. And up ahead, Gnorix had bouldered an upthrust wing of rock and now stood, lightning-framed, beckoning them onwards. A cave! his clear voice cutting through the wind. He's led us through, Kalane's murmur, barely loud enough for Mugmedius to hear. By the gods, he's led us through again. And though a lifelong cynic, Mugmedius couldn't help but feel some flicker of the same awe which widened Kalane's eyes and squared his shoulders. It felt like they were living through the first chapter of some new legend. Gnorix leads survivors through the storm, he wondered what that story's second act would be, what role there was for old and broken men to play. The cave, a split in the rock, a wound, neither warm nor dry, but sheltered enough to hide their huddled bodies from the wind. They crouched together, watching sleety rain tear into the mountainside. Cormie covered his ears against the moaning rage of wind. Were there voices howling on that wind? Mugmedius didn't know if the others could hear them, but when he squeezed his eyes shut, he thought he heard the dying cries of men upon that storm, the mourning wails of long-dead widows passing keenly through the stone. Were they, then, the voices of the dead? But which dead? And from whence? And created by what deplorable act? He didn't know. He hunched forward and drew his wretched cloak around him. 
Yet, while the others hunched and trembled, Gnorix was all activity. At the back of the cave, a dry crevice split the rock, and though the others couldn't bear to face its deeper darkness, Gnorix climbed through, squeezing his heroic frame through grinding teeth of stone. A few moments later, he returned, pushing through a bale of dry timber some traveler or herdsman had stashed the gods alone knew how far back. Praise the gods! In the lightning-flickered gloom, Kalein stared up with admiration undisguised. I owe you an apology, Prince Gnorix. His teeth were chattering with the cold. He had to force his words through. When you first came to us, I thought... Well, it doesn't matter what I thought. Now I know you truly are what you say. Without you, we'd all be dead. Mugmedius bent his head and began to wordlessly build a fire. Like Colain, he'd laughed behind the self-styled prince's back. Now he wondered if he'd been a fool. Don't underestimate yourself, Colain. Gnorx clapped him on the shoulder, stepping past a stand in the entrance of the cave, framed by the storm. You're men of the bold folk. The strength is in your blood. Take more than a few southerners to kill the likes of you. But Colain's laugh was wry, tinged of despair. If that were true, wouldn't more of us have made it? He's right. Mugmedius blew his little fire into bloom. I saw plenty of our blood today, and not so much strength. Cormy only huddled, staring in the corner. His silence joined their side of the argument. Face it, said Kalane. We've lost. But then the thunder roared. Gnorrick surrounded on them, slashing air with the blade of his hand. That is not so! They stared up at him, taken aback by the sudden outburst. He came and crouched across them at the new fire, and its light was fearsome in his eyes. We have not lost. Only our feeble kings and soft usurping chiefs have failed today, weakened by luxury, squandering their seed on foreign wives. Is it any wonder they led us to defeat? Cormy shifted in the corner. For the first time, his eyes seemed to focus. He appeared to take in what was being said. So the wives are to blame. Magmedius's voice was dry as the firewood, but the self-styled prince ignored him. My friends, he gathered their attention with both fists. This is not the end of our war, but only its beginning. When our grandchildren look back, they'll say this is when our people first woke up, when they remembered who they were. And, in spite of himself, Magmedius felt his cynicism waver. Something in the prince's deep, clear voice made hair rise from the back of his neck. Once again, that feeling of the beginning of something. Some new legend. Gnorix leads survivors to the storm. He struggled against this feeling. And who were we, Gnorix? But this was the question Gnorix was waiting for. We... He rose to his feet. We're mighty. He thrust his arm out to the storm, and the fire lit him from below like a golden image from the grave goods of a king. Do you know where we are? His oratory filled the tiny cave. This plateau was once a citadel. Here, my ancestors were kings and queens in the days before the blood of kings ran thin. Terraces of stone and timber, walls no enemy could breach. 
and on a clear day the gilded palace roofs would shine so bright they could be seen a hundred miles away. So it could be again. So it will be again. When we break the southern army and retake our land, I will rebuild this place even greater than before. I swear it, now, here, before you three, and all the gods. Gnorix let his words hang upon the air a moment, then, with a nostalgic smile, sank back, until he was seated on their level once again. Then the four of us will return and drink together. We'll laugh and remember the night we thought we'd lost the war. A long silence as all three stared at this strange, compelling man. And then, Colain lifted an imaginary horn of meat. To the night, we thought we lost the war. Gnorix laughed and lifted his own invisible horn to toast. Even Cormie gave a little smile and raised his hand. But when these three turned to Mugmedius, the old man didn't join in and refused to look up from the fire. Well, what say you, Mugmedius? asked Gnorix. Aye, said Colain. Why don't you drink? I don't drink because my horn is empty. Mugmedius turned the imaginary object upside down. It all sounds good, Gnorix. But how do we get there? From drafted cave to golden hall? Ah, Gnorix crouched forward as if over the table at a council of war. Well, first we'll need an army. Colain nodded, as if this obvious statement was some kind of deep insight. But we had an army, Mugmedius pointed out. And where all that's left? Where will you find new soldiers? In your dead ancestors' halls? But Gnorix smiled. That's exactly where I'll find them. A silence. Cold winds carried sleet across the cavern entrance. The fire trembled. You mean, among the dead? Cormie's voice was a bare whisper. <laughs> Gnorix threw his head back, his laughter sudden and jarring. Only in a manner of speaking, little brother. He leaned in once more. The kings of old would pay their warriors with golden armbands. He jerked his chin. There are barrows up there, the top of this valley. We'll find plenty of gold inside to hire warriors of our own. Yet the others hesitated at this suggestion. It chilled them. Mugmedius could still hear those voices on the wind. You mean to steal from... from them? Colain couldn't even name them. But doubt didn't cross Gnorix's face. Of course not, brother. When the war's won, we'll refill those graves tenfold. These are my ancestors, remember? They won't begrudge a small loan. And now, Cormie, Colain, and Mugmedius all looked at one another. How do you even know there will be gold? The old man said. Those graves are old. Surely someone plundered them long ago. Gnorix only spread his heavy hands. I know, was all he said. Do you trust me? A moment's pause. Do you trust me? With emphasis this time. I trust you, Cormie's little voice. You saved our lives. I trust you. Now, Mugmedius and Colain shared a final look. Colain broke it first. I am with you, brother, he told Gnorix. To whatever end. 
and Mugmedius was left alone. I'll go along with you, he sighed, but I have doubts. Gnorix laughed and clapped his hands. All hopes are fool's hopes until they are proven wise. So we are decided. Tomorrow we climb past the citadel. And then our war begins again. That night, the four survivors rested cold. Their only lullaby, the howling voices of the dead. Dawn broke thin and chill, and they climbed past great fortifications long since weathered to ridges on the pale green earth. Cold and dark against the blank sky, the mountaintops watched them. A big place, a wild place, a place where people weren't meant to go. At their little column's head, Gnorix was striding with an arm around Kurmi's shoulder, telling him stories of epic pasts or futures. Lagging behind, Mugmedius caught Kalane by the threadbare sleeve. How do you feel about all this? Kalane's eyes widened with surprise. About all what? Mugmedius waved his hand. Treasure hordes and armies raised and glory days restored. Kalane's eyes flicked uphill toward the self-styled prince. I believe he wants what's best for our people. And what's best for our people just so happens to be what brings him fame and gilded halls? Well, why not? Kalane's voice took on an edge. Someone will have them. Why not him? The man who brought us through the storm. Mugmedius said nothing. He tried to fall back, but Kalane stopped and put a hand to his shoulder, clasping him firmly. Mugmedius, do you want to believe? Uh, I don't know. Do you want to believe that our people could rule this world again? Mugmedius hunched his shoulders, tilted his head from side to side. On some level, yes. But just because I want to believe doesn't mean if you want to believe, believe. Kalane's voice was sure. Remember all we've been through together. Do you trust me? The two men had survived more than one battle in each other's company. Uh, you know I do, Kalane. Kalane drew back and offered his hand. I trust him. So take my hand, you old bastard, and climb. And after a moment, Magmedius did as he was told. Past the green-grown geometry of a long-forsaken city, they arrived at a plateau of dry grass and high barrows, encircled by looming mountain peaks, all lost in fog. Dozens of mounds erected to the dead, all slightly pointed, all silent under the low, thick sky. The air still within this cul-de-sac of stone, the drab grass drifting only seldom in a sluggish breeze. No howling voices today. Yet still, Mugmedius thought he felt the stifling, staring presence of the dead. Gnorix did not slow, but led them with long strides deep among the shaded laneways of the Barrow Valley. Many of the mounds were open already, the darkness of their passages awaiting and obscene. Yet the deeper in they went, the more undisturbed the crouching mounds. This one. Gnorix's sudden declaration loud in the hush. He had paused before one mound of no distinction, neither highest nor lowest. No stone warrior guarded it with weathered face and broken arms. 
No holy tree grew gnarled from its peak. Yet he stood transfixed by this mound, as if awed by some aspect only he could see. And maybe this was only play-acting. Maybe he'd chosen the mound simply because it was nondescript, and so less likely to have been robbed already. But perhaps there was something to that barrow. Cormie trembled in its presence, and even Mugmedius could not deny a certain cold aura, as if the hill was shaded by dark trees, instead of standing underneath the open sky. Yes, this is the place. Gnorix licked dry lips, filled with some private rapture. Then he straightened, pulling his dagger from his hip. Come on, let's dig. Lacking shovels, they made do with blades and hands and flat stones, tapping into the stony soil with whatever vigor they could muster on an empty stomach. The labor pitiless, but Gnorix urged them on, dauntless in his own efforts that each felt ashamed to do less than his utmost. And though it cost them many bloody knuckles and broken nails, eventually the earth fell away beneath Colain's knife, and he shouted in triumph as the sucking darkness of a buried passage was revealed. None too soon, for as the four men dropped into that cramped space, clouds were coalescing once again, and thunder prowled among the nearby peaks. Mugmedius was the last to climb down. But he climbed down. I thought it would be cold. Colain's murmur was muffled by the dark earth. But it was warm down there, the black air sleekly musty like a dead cat nestled in the wall, the tunnel just high enough to crouch in, only a faint gray trace of light steeped in from their breach above. This way, brothers. Down the sloping passageway through a broken door of fossilizing oak, into the belly of the mound. Magmedius, back here. Take this. He felt Gnorix press something into his hands, a kind of heavy bowl filled with what smelt like rancid tallow. Hold still. Then a rustle and click, a shower of red sparks. Twice, three more times, until something caught, and a low, hellish glow began to rise from the burning crescent in his hand. There, let me light this one as well. Fire gave birth to fire, and then, by the red light of ancient fact, a plundered chamber was revealed. Narrow and low, petrified beams barely supporting the earth above, a stone door ahead, a broken wooden one behind. Nothing, said Magmedius. Looks like someone got here first, said Colain. A few shattered pots lay scattered in the corners, their shards meandering with mold and green designs, a jute rug rotten underneath a brown skeleton off to one side, but nothing else. A great emptiness in a small space. Damn them. Damn them, Gnorix muttered. May the gods curse all grave robbers. What do you think? A boy or a girl? Colain was crouching over the skeleton. He was a man of average size, but next to him those bones looked very small. A boy, I'd guess, said Mugmedius, joining him. Oh, look, clenched in his hand. The robbers missed something. Dead little fingers gave way as he tugged. 
A golden brooch with the cloak of a little warrior. Its triplicate designs threw back the red light. Look how pure the gold is. As bright today as when it was first forged. What about this? The robber's work? Colain nudged the skull with one finger. It rolled slightly, dislocated from the rest of the body. Hmm. No. Magmedius pocketed the brooch and leaned close. Nickmark's here on the vertebra. Probably this is what killed him, or else they cut off his head afterward to desecrate the body. Cormy flinched, and Colain mumbled a prayer. But over on the far end of the chamber, Gnorix was paying no attention. He was standing at the stone door, studying it by the dim light of his flame. I don't think the robbers made it through this door. He put his ear against the stone, wrapped his knuckles against it. Whatever's on the other side must be unspoiled. We'd need tools to break in, said Magmedius. So do we have to come back? said Cormie. Gnorix found a stone handle recessed into the portal's edge, but no matter how he pushed or pulled, the door refused to budge. I suppose so, said Magmedius. But then Gnorix laughed. Maybe not, he said. Maybe all it takes is the royal touch. And then he twisted the handle. Something began to give, and he redoubled his efforts, veins standing out dark from his arms as something clicked, and the door began to roll to one side along hidden grooves on the floor, revealing darkness. A wide, thick darkness where points of gold reflected back the dim glow of their lamps, like stars trembling in the ocean depth. Gold, Cormy whispered, and as the four survivors crowded round that door, an entire inner chamber was lit up red with golden phosphor, as the cresset's glow shone back from a hundred torques and gorgets, from gilded arms and belts and golden sandals, and from gilding still untarnished on helms and greaves of crumbling brazen green. A bedizened crypt. The four men entered slow, with silent awe. I've never seen so much in one place. None of us have. All of us put together, said Colain. Whose tomb was this? Some ancient king? Mugmedius brushed fingertips along the horned serpent handle of a golden bowl. Some conqueror of distant lands. No king, Gnorix said, drifting further in. A queen. For amidst this forest of golden goods, a golden couch lay stretched, and on it lay a body wrapped in crumbling cloth of gold. Undoubtedly a queen. Her dry, dark auburn hair was wreathed by a golden diadem inlaid with geometrical designs. Skeins of reddish amber beads were strewn about her hollow throat and bust. Hazel-leaf earrings of purest gold lay nestled in her hair, so fine they could have been pulled still living from the tree. She wore golden bracelets, slippers soled and laced with supple gold, and round her shrunken thigh a golden garter belt was cinched, and studded crimson red with garnets. The dry air had mummified her. Though her eyes were empty, weathered skin still stretched across her cheek, showing the fine bone structure. 
Though death had drawn her gums, her teeth were straight and only faintly yellow. Though desiccation had split her belly's skin, revealing dry parts within, the curve of flank was still as smooth as it had been in life. Cormie blanched at the sight of her. Kalane spared only a glance, caring more for the treasures of her tomb. Magmedius bent to study the pattern of her golden gown. But the self-styled prince had eyes for her alone. She's beautiful. Yes, she must have been. Tracing the pattern down her side, Magmedius found golden lacquer on her clawed fingernails. Still young when she was buried. I wonder if that boy in the next chamber was her son. If they died together or apart. Any way to find out? An idle question from Colleen, preoccupied by an amethyst-encrusted silver bowl. But instead of giving an answer, Magmedius hung his head and began to laugh. Magmedius? Who cares? What does it matter? Just look around us. Look around us. He stood, turning away from the body and stepping down the dais with hands pressed to either side of his face. Old man? I can't believe he was right, Colleen. Just look at all of it. My gods, enough to pay an army for a hundred-year campaign. Enough to gild the roofs of a hundred citadels. Why did I doubt you? Colleen began to laugh as well letting the bowl slip from his fingers. And after a moment, Cormie joined too. All the terror of the battle, all the struggle and hardship of the climb and storm and dig poured out of them as they crouched over their knees, gasping for breath as they whooped and cackled for joy. Gnorix didn't join them. He was still bent over the body. She must have been some distant cousin. His murmur drowned out by the laughter as he touched her sleeping cheek. I see the resemblance on her face. Maybe we'd have known each other, then. Maybe I could have saved her son. I was wrong about you, Gnorix. Magmedius turned back toward him, using grubby knuckles to wipe his streaming eyes. Klein was right. I should have never doubted you were the man you say you are. The man who will lead our people back to greatness. Cormie and Colleen both cheered. Then Mugmedius's face fell. A small, dry sound as the cheering died away. Silence in the burial chamber. One small change to the scene. When Mugmedius had turned away, Gnorix had been bent over the golden couch, caressing the mummy's cheek with gentle fingertips. Now, she had reached up to caress his cheek in return. A soft clunk sounded as the three men stared, and then the stone door rolled shut behind them. Mugmedius closed his eyes in time for that final sounding thud. A few trickles of dust spiraled down from the ceiling. And then a dry voice spoke. Do I am then dreaming? He opened his eyes. The mummified princess lay like a pliant beauty, gazing up with empty sockets as if at some long-awaited paramour. Gnorix stumbled back. Some mix of emotions had made his eyes go wide, but only one of them was fear. 
Slowly, the princess pushed herself up until half recumbent with the light shining gold behind her, through the cloud of dark and reddish hair that tumbled down emaciated shoulders. Her gown pooled golden, the crimson rays refracted from her crumbling raiment and imperishable gems. But inside of her was darkness, yawning all consumed from the hollow of eyes and mouth, the dry split in her half-hidden belly. If see thee dwell, am I dying of thirst? Each word, dry paper, crumbling into dust. Shalt thou giving thee undrink to myself, for is my throat then most dry-like? None answered her at first. Cormy and Colain were transfixed in place like butterflies, and even Gnorik stood silent, his pupils filled with her darkness. Only Magmedia seemed able to think. Hasty and with trembling hands, he unstoppered the nearly empty water skin at his shoulder. Great lady! He hesitated, unsure how to address her. Even in the dialect of his own time, he had little practice with the high and mighty. We... we have little water, but we would share it with you. He held out the flask, forcing himself to take a halting step forward. But she raised one hand in polite rejection. Nay, can be drinking I not of water? Doth it not refresh me? No, but, uh, great lady, we... we have no wine. Suddenly, a firm hand pushed him aside. Gnorix had taken control of himself, and now, as at the battle before, he took action. It is not wine she needs to drink, Mugmedius. From a nearby pile of gilded hilts, he unsheathed a blade of greening bronze and slid its rough edge across his palm. Still sharp enough. Dark blood pooled in the semi-darkness, and as he climbed the dais once again, her desiccated nostrils flared up at the scent. Dost offer thou this succor to me in troth? It is a paltry gift for so fair a princess as yourself. How could he sound so calm, so sure, so suddenly in control? It was as if she were just some chieftain's daughter, he, some brave, come to court with gifts of honeyed meat. Out of the corner of his eye, Mugmedia saw Cormy snap from his stupor and sprint for the door, drawing a brief and detached glance from the princess as he yelled and struggled with the stone. Pointlessly, that door was sealed shut. Mugmedius gathered himself, sat quietly on a bronze stool, eyes flicking across the chamber to meet Colain's. The same thought in both their minds. They had doubted Gnorix before and been proven wrong. Gnorix tricks the dead princess. That's what this would be. Just another early episode in the legend. And yet, as Gnorix stepped forward, blood running from his cupped hands, the princess laughed at him, tilting her chin and biting the tip of one finger. And shall be drinking I then of thy hand, dog-like, or shalt be giving thou me yon vessel to drink of? In the red light, a flush crept up his neck. Of course, please forgive me my country manners, I... But as he reached for a silver goblet, she seized his wrist with a delicate hand. Nay. Dry muscles creaked, 
contorting dead grimace into a smile. Shall drink I thy gift as was offered it. And looking up at him, she brushed her parched hair aside and bent her neck, lapping at the pooled blood in his hand with a dry tongue, so that he gasped slightly with each dry caress of the open wound. Mugmedius glanced away, turned by the intimacy of the act. But now Cormie was hysterical by the door, pounding and clawing with desperate, clammy hands. Mugmedius ignored him. His trust was in Gnorix. By now, the princess had drank her fill, and slowly straightened, using a corner of Gnorix's cloak to wipe her chin. Am I sated? For now, she whispered. Do I thank thee for thy generosity? He allowed her to push him gently back to a lower step. Shrunken as she was with death, she might have seemed small, but her presence in the gold and crimson rays was all commanding as she raised her voice. And do I thank thee all for mine waking? To be Sibaris am I, and princess have I been. Hearing themselves addressed, Clane and Mugmedia straightened, and Cormie turned, shrinking his back into the stone. And yet, ask I must of thee an altogether other favor. You need only ask, great queen. Gnorix bowed. She raised hands to her brittle heart. Art thou courtly? The sound of blood trickling through her tissues like rain and dry leaves. Know I the face of thee? Art thou of me, perhaps, a kinsman? Yes, lady. Surely, yes. And Gnorix was so plainly flattered by the suggestion, so baldly eager for it to be true, that Mugmedius felt a sudden stab of dread. Is that both just and meet? She clapped with delight. Brought fate here thou, O kinsman mine, was fate indeed. And what does fate require? The prince's voice grown thick. She pressed up close to him. His hands were trembling at his sides, and not from fear. He's buried my murdered son in the chamber without, and shattered with him the line royal of kings. Shall be it, and shall so slide our people to decay, or shall be restored the line. And now that dread had risen like a black tide to pour down Magmedius's throat. The line of kings must be renewed, Gnorix said. She gave a light, dry laugh. Did I hope that thou would say such? And then she lowered a hand to her waist, drawing aside the crumbled veil of her dress. Within the stale hollows of her naked intestine, the trickling blood had watered a dry womb by slow, bright drips, until it pinkened once again with life. Shalt take thou me to wife, O kinsman mine. Shalt make thou then a son anew for me. And now, at last, Mugmedius understood his dread. The air within the chamber had become both stale and hazy sweet, 
Gnorx's breath was heavy in his throat. He did not answer immediately, but stared into her dry face, her hollow eyes, her dry lips rouged with human blood. Tell her no, Gnorx. Magmedius's voice, a frail whisper, coming now too little and too late. Please, just tell her no. Be quiet, old man, said Colleen. But the self-styled prince heard neither voice. I am worthy. Gnorix's whisper echoed through the gold. I will get you with a worthy son. And then he bent and put his living mouth to desiccated teeth and tongue. Mugmedius fell back against the treasures of a bygone age and covered up his face. He did not see as Dubisibaris reached up and wrapped her arms around Gnorix's neck, did not see her golden gown disintegrate against his chest, did not see him reach down and find her warm and slickened with his own spilled blood. He only heard the catch of breath in Gnorix's throat, the rustle of dry flesh, the paper moan, the creak of golden couch beneath the lover's weight, Cormie's little whimper of despair. And then a voice beside him. Open your eyes, Magmedius. Colleen's arm was wrapped around him. We're part of this. I won't. I can't. It's too late now. So open up your eyes, my friend, and witness the conception of a king. And after a moment, Mugmedius did what he was told. The Wrong Station is made possible with the generous support of our listeners on Patreon. Patrons can listen to The Wrong Station ad-free, as well as get access to bonus episodes, discussions, and more. This week's episode, Fallow Ground, was written by Alexander Saxton and performed by Anthony Botello. Thank you to Matthew Hriachik, Julia Roma, Denise Jones, Amy Martz, Etta H., and Heather Gallagher for helping us keep the lights, well, off. The Wrong Station is co-produced by Alexander Saxton, Anthony Botello, and Jacob Duarte Spiel, with music composed and performed on the piano by Elan Citrin, and arranged for the viola and performed by Viola Schmidt. You can follow The Wrong Station on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and email us at therongstation at gmail.com. And until next time, thank you for listening.